0: Welcome to the New Books
2: Network. Hi, and welcome to the New Books Network Library Science Channel. My name is Hillel Yadin. I'm your host for this episode, and I am here with Mark V. Campbell and Mary Foreman, the co-editors, I guess, um, of Hip Hop Archives: The Politics and Poetics of Knowledge Production. Uh, would you like to introduce yourselves and the book?
1: sure I mean Murray would you like to, to lead us off
3: here I'll jump in my name is Murray Foreman I'm a professor of media and screen studies at Northeastern University um I've worked generally and you know broadly in media but I've looked at popular music uh, and media and then more specifically within that range um since uh, almost 30 years uh, working on hip-hop within uh, a media and uh, music industry context. Um I'm co-editor of three editions now of uh That's the joint, the hip hop studies reader. And um, just a lot of a lot of interest and research in hip hop over over the course of my
0: career.
1: And I'm Mark V. Campbell. Um This is my uh, second edited collection on hip hop. My first one is uh, We Still Here, Hip Hop North of the 49th Parallel. Focuses on hip hop in Canada. Um, And my monograph came after that, Afrosonic Life. And uh, yeah, I'm a DJ and a curator. And uh, I've been in Toronto all my life. uh, and been part of the hip-hop scene here, hosting radio shows, uh, DJing at events, you know, throwing events, et cetera, and archiving uh, Canadian hip-hop history.
2: Wonderful. Thank you both. Um, listeners, this is my first interview with more than one author. So we'll see how this next part of the question goes. Do you want to talk about the book?
1: Uh, yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's chat about the book. Um you know you know when we started we started when we started this book it was uh, we were uh, both living in a different world we were all in a different world and it was something that we had to get cracking in, in the middle of the pandemic but you know we knew that there were Not very many people writing about archiving hip-hop, but there were lots of people engaged in preserving it, either officially or unofficially. We know people in communities that had collections, but they weren't necessarily donated to libraries. And then we knew that there were, you know, institutions um, you know, largely, largely connected to Ivy League universities that had hip hop archival collections. So we thought we can't we can't keep. Uh, seeing this happen on the ground and not not really provided with any kind of rigorous academic attention.
3: Mm-hmm. For me, being in the uh, you know Boston uh, area and adjacent to uh, Harvard, Harvard is among the first um, to have the Harvard um, Hip Hop Archive and Research Institute. And and while it's more of a research institute, I'd say than a, an actual hands on archive. Um, certainly, having that term. In their title uh, and having a kind of an archival intent at some level was important and uh, and then not being too very very far away from Cornell, which has the Cornell hip hop collection, which at this point, I would say, is um, the kind of the gold standard. uh, uh, In terms of collecting archiving uh, making available um, uh, hip hop artifacts Uh, so i've been able to you know, I was able to go and, and spend time at both of those. And then Mark and I were just becoming aware of every, you know, every city of scale had something going on of an archival nature. And uh, we were trying to document it, follow it on their websites and that sort of thing. Uh, and at the same time, wondering what's going on internationally, not just wanting to have a, a U.S. or Canada, you know, North America centric kind of perspective, which often does happen with hip hop studies. Um, so we pulled pulled from our networks and, um, you know, things that were going on elsewhere. Uh, and trying to you know p- put the uh, put the question out there, what's going on what what in time in terms of hip hop archiving is being done in your country, in your region, in your you know your locale, in your city? um and we were really impressed um with how much interest there was and and how much activity there was. We couldn't include everything in the book there there was more and uh, there were more people saying, you know we'd like to be included. We'd like to tell our story too.
1: yeah, and uh, we did we couldn't get all the stories in th- there were there are far more stories, far more archivists, uh, and collectors and scholars that we just couldn't get into the book. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Maybe uh there'll be a second a second edition. Uh Murray, Murray's smiling, I think he <laughs> would love that. The North America centrism is certainly a persistent problem in archival studies as well. Um so it was really it was really great to see the breadth of the collections and practitioners that were represented in the book. Um, maybe to that end, uh, this is a question that I always ask people who put together edited volumes. Does the does the final product does this book? Align with what you were initially envisioning when you embarked upon this project, and was there anything surprising about the submissions you actually ended up receiving?
3: I mean, I, you know, I, I don't know if we had a, a real clear vision of of what the uh, the final product might look like. Um, there's a couple of reasons for that. When when we really sort of got this going and put out the call for papers it was immediately before the uh, the pandemic broke loose. Um, and so right away, I think with, with so many things in the world, um, any preconceived notion you might have had of of where you might be going with something uh fell apart uh, or got derailed. Um so we're just glad that something at all came out of it, <laughs> um, to be honest. But um but one of the things that, that we we did start looking at is uh what 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 what, what are the scale of uh, archival pro- projects did we want to be looking at? You know, did we want to be looking at simply larger institutional type of um, uh, situations and scenarios, or did we want to try and cast the net a little bit more widely and sort of say, like, what is an archive and at what point maybe does a collection have a pre-archival um, uh, poss- possibility and potential? Um, and once we, you know, even though the um, the pandemic, um, you know, erupted and, and uh, changed a lot of things, we were, you know, and, and we and in fact, we, we lost a few people because of the pandemic, people who lost their access. I mentioned this in the um, in the uh, afterward lost their access to the archives that they were going to be researching or had familial um, uh, responsibilities that uh, they just couldn't overcome, uh, you know, in order to do their chapter or contribute. Um, but but what we did is we sort of looked at the different scale of things and we really did i think capture from my from my perspective capture some of things from the larger institutional undertakings like you know the level of the uh, cornell and the uh, ivy league institutions all the way down to what people do have in their in their bedrooms in their closets in their attics their basements that sort of thing uh, and i think that's important to try and to try and capture the fullness of it and so in that regard that that's what i idealized that's what i was aiming and hoping for and i think we managed to 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 pull that part off
1: yeah and the piece about artists like we made sure that artists had a had a a strong voice in in the book and we wanted to make sure that it wasn't just a bunch of uh detached folks that weren't on the ground practicing uh art uh, aspects and art forms in hip-hop culture so that piece was 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 wonderful to keep the you know the artists in the mix and 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 allowed their voices to reverberate through multiple chapters but you know for me one of the things that i wanted to see come out of this book was to expand the network of 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 who's talking about this there was no public discourse about um a, a level of criticality around the archival discourse, you know, and we've managed to, um, you know, from 2010 when I I had my first exhibition in Toronto, it was Toronto's first hip hop uh, exhibition, like oh, of historical items, and Murray was there. Um, and there was nobody to bounce ideas off besides Murray because he came to Toronto and he saw what I was doing and was like, you know, who who cares about these things besides me? Um, and now there are folks in Sweden that care. There's folks that are you know uh, connected to the Philippines and yougos the former Yugoslavia and East Germany that that I could call up and say, hey, here's a here's a real scenario that you know, here's a difficulty I'm having with you know, obtaining. You know, you name it, you know, original photographs of graffiti pieces that are now eroded or something. So that for me has been in in a selfish kind of way. It's been great to have more public criticality, you know, around archival discourse that has an impact on hip hop culture. Mm-hmm. But in terms of the book, we definitely wanted to get outside of North America. Um, there were some continents we didn't get. Uh, we weren't able to uh, get submissions from. So, you know, all in all, I think we did a, a fairly uh, decent job of breaking ground. There, there was also no model for us to follow. So, you know, we started this conversation and it's important that we we made sure the global north and the global south were both in this conversation, you know, to the best of our abilities.
2: Absolutely. And I think it this is something that a number of contributors, um, i'll I'll keep bringing it back to archival studies because <laughs> that's that's where I'm coming from. A number of contributors talk about this. There's no there's no there there wasn't really anything, any base of scholarship in hip-hop archiving for sure. And just in general, this kind of performance archiving, music archiving, uh, this is, I think, underdeveloped in the archival world period. So it's not there was, I imagine, just not a ton of stuff you could draw from.
3: I I, I would I would dispute that a little bit, because in, in terms of some of the um, popular music and um, music heritage uh, work, there's quite a bit being done in England. Um, and here I'm pointing rather specifically, although it's more widespread than that, but uh, people at the University of Liverpool. Um, you know, looking at, you know, the, the Liverpool as uh, the, the home of the Beatles and, uh, you know, having a rich musical heritage. And also it's it's historical role, it's racial history, all of these sort of things that, that Liverpool is, as as an archival site was quite is and was quite fascinating. Um, and so there's a number of people, I think, coming coming from you know, the tradition, British cultural studies tradition. Um, and they've looked at music heritage. Now, it's not precisely archive, and I don't think they were necessarily always calling it archival in their work, more of a kind of music heritage approach. But there's a lot out there, people like Sarah Baker, uh, Marion Leonard, uh, Les Roberts, Sarah Cohen, um, and you know there, there are others as well. Um, and, and so with my foundation and footing in um, in popular music studies and then knowing some of these people, um, at least uh, as email contacts, if not personally, um, that I, I did have people that I could reach out to and they made recommendations of material and approaches and that sort of thing. Um, and I think that was really kind of helpful to us. And, and of course, you know, this is this was you're absolutely right. One of the absence was there's nothing about hip hop represented in this work and and as Mark says we're kind of at the first we're pioneers um helping to usher this into maybe an archival uh, uh realm but it wasn't like we were going completely um without a map that the, the the popular music heritage people had um, had sort of shown a little bit of a, a way to to proceed
2: thank you for that um listeners I will link some of those scholars that marie just mentioned and some work out of the university of liverpool i'll look into that um so we have those in the episode notes um there are there are certainly particular challenges to archiving music performance um anything sort of time-based and ephemeral And a couple more than several contributors cited a performance studies scholar named Diana Taylor, and more than one specifically uh, referenced one concept of hers, which is this tension between the archive and the repertoire. Can you speak to that tension in hip hop archives specifically?
1: Sure. I mean, this has been generative for my work, and I've been publishing, you know, uh, probably for about a decade or or so on on hip hop archives. And what I love about Diana Taylor, and she's rightfully well cited, is that what becomes really clear is that there's an official way to preserve things um, that requires institutional structures like libraries. and the bricks and mortar archive. And then there's another half of the world that preserves through performance, through song, through dance. Um, And that understanding that divide is really helpful in terms of um, allowing archival theory to understand its limits. Um, And then when, and to practice and engage multiple forms of preservation, which people are doing all the time on the ground um so it's really helpful when you're thinking about hip hop as a multidisciplinary form there it's not just um oral it's not just physical kinesthetic it's not just visual it's all of them at the same time sometimes um and trying to understand how to preserve that art form if you were to try to fit hip hop into this kind of um linear archival historical record that's indebted to to enlightenment thinking, then you end up with boxes and papers. And if you and and if you engage the idea of repertoire, then you end up with elders that have dance moves and you end up with elders that have lyrics. You end up listening in my in my in one of my last experiences in the in, in an institutional archive um. Charlie Ahern, who's the producer of this DVD called uh, Wild Style, it's like a cult classic mm-hmm. hip hop film, one of the first that went around the world. You know, he's interviewing someone and he's talking about, I don't know if I told this story, Murray, but he's talking about Easy Mo B and the 1981 rap convention. And one thing just hits me. He's like, you know, Easy Mo B, he's like an archive of rhymes because he's, he's still spitting the same rhymes from '81. Like, you know, these are just these small rhyming couplets, just over the beat and whatever. These aren't like verses and like, you know, well-developed rhymes that you'd have today. And it it just, you know, Diana Taylor popped into my head and I was thinking, wow, what if we were to think about all of the ways that MCs memorize a whole set of lyrics from decades and decades ago? and how they preserve those and how they reuse them in their new rhymes. Because there is this internal citational process happening in hip-hop that's very different than the sampling that, that producers are doing. MCs are citing one another too. um, And that should all be included in how we think about the archival processes of hip-hop and, and how we think about preserving hip-hop and who is actually doing the preserving outside of the institutional frame. Yeah.
3: I mean, just alongside that your easy mobile uh example is a great one and I, th- I think it might be in the um jason nor and mary fogarty chapter uh, about uh dance videos and yeah. you know, and i think i think they pose the question like can you something to the effect of can you dance in the archive or can one dance in the archive um and i a little bit of what i think they're getting at is you know it may be literal (laughs) like you know you know is there is there you know can you have a uh, you know a a freestyle dance cipher in an archive but the other thing i think is about you know the accumulation of moves and the establishment and learning of those foundations and how those get preserved and passed along and made publicly accessible as knowledge you know yeah yeah
0: this episode is brought to you by sax.com
2: really persistent theme in the book is the locality of hip-hop culture. Um, so how do individual hip-hop archives reflect and preserve this locality? And this is, of course, archives broadly defined. Um, and are there any any particular examples from the book um, or from the archival prat- practitioners who contributed to the book that you want to share?
3: Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it's absolutely true. I mean, one of my, my my first book is um the hood comes first on race place and space, uh, in hip hop. This idea of locality, in fact, is really crucial to the, to the culture. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it starts and it can be at like what I call the hyper extreme local. You know, one's block. You know, literally the street corners where you spend your time, where you live, where your your family and your you know your nurture uh, nurturing um, juices and energies are are based. It can be, you know, the scale of a city or a town. It can be regional. You know, it, it just sort of um uh grows outwardly from there. But many, many things in hip hop do begin at the at this local basis. Um, and I would say this is to some extent also true in archives. Um, way before we get to something like the Smithsonian Institution uh having, you know, having hip hop within their, their hallowed halls, um, we've got people starting to, you know, like, you know pulling things out of their closets and trying to say like, you know, what can we do to create something that's community accessible, that's community responsive, that somehow tells our story within this larger frame of a, you know, national or global hip hop movement. Um, And so almost all the hip hop archives and archival initiatives that we've encountered do have some sort of local seed. They begin locally. They They begin with a small group of people putting their heads together and saying, a, we're getting old, B, we've been around long enough. Often we're not being represented or or noticed uh, sufficiently. And we want to, you know, this is one of the ways that we can ensure that we're we're part of the narrative, part of the story, and <laughs> we're not overlooked. Um, and and so, you know, I, I'll, I'll, I mean, I'm, I'm here in Boston, so I can point to uh, uh, Pacey Foster, the founder and director of the Massachusetts Hip Hop Archive. And, you know, as that chapter indicates, it's quite by serendipity that he ends up with a collection of of hip hop cassette tapes from a, a local uh, community campus radio station, um, knowing the value of what he has historically and and uh, in in terms of knowledge, uh, but not sure how to how to bring it out. How to, what do you do with it? How do you preserve it? How do you how do you both protect, protect it, but also make it community responsible uh, or responsive and accessible? Uh, and so you know he he and called in the the pioneers called in the the veterans, called in people from the public library, Boston Public Library from his institution, University of Massachusetts in Boston. You know, so he got people at all different levels and all kinds of representation, you know, um, footing in the community saying, okay, we've got this thing that's unique and distinct to Boston, and it tells our story. Let's work. And uh, And, you know, that's something that I think every city, I'm realizing now, every city or archival initiative has some version of that narrative.
1: Yeah. And in Toronto, I mean, um, the scenario was a little bit different, but I was on radio and I had a ridiculous collection of demo tapes, flyers, magazines I was collecting. Um, And at one point in time in the classroom, not having materials to teach with was I was clearly like, we need to focus on Toronto history because... Uh, this is right before t- Twitter came about. And I was like, oh, you know, things are moving quickly. MySpace is disappearing. You know, you have Facebook is gathering steam. And what's going to disappear next other than all of our histories that were recorded on paper in the last decade, right? So um, that's really the the story of Toronto hip-hop um, only started gathering attention, you know, after 2010, after realizing that, you know, there are all of these new technologies that are just creating new data piles and just burying anything that was not recently digitized or not digitally born. Um, so, you know, Montreal is now doing a lot of that homework. Ottawa is also doing a lot of the homework. They're gathering. Ottawa just had an amazing, it's actually still up, an amazing exhibition called 83 Till Infinity. We should definitely put a link to the to listeners. It's in Ottawa up until the middle of February, and you know it. Was, the community came together and crowdsourced um, a, a whole bunch of historical objects and items, uh, and they collaboratively put this exhibition together at the Ontario at uh, the Ottawa Art Gallery. Um, so slowly but surely, you know, local communities are coming together to to capture their history, and it's you know. It's it's great to see that because Toronto can't tell Ottawa's history historical you know trajectory and and of course Montreal being a more multilingual city than than Toronto there's you know you know we just can't there's so many differences that we each story is is so layered and rich that they deserve their own space and and their own
3: leaders. I'm just gonna it's like people listening won't see this but i'm holding up the book so these cd i mean uh, cassette tapes here are, are from toronto and mark's collection and this one over here is from uh, the massachusetts hip-hop archive um you know we wanted to make sure that we actually at some point had images of material that that was foundational to um uh, our, our 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 own localities
2: i love that there will be a picture of the book on the on the episode page so they'll be able to see it also if you want to see it up closer you can buy the book um yeah i'm always struck i mean the the answers you just gave in in the book just in my work and in the many archives i interact with sometimes it's not even a local story it's it's one person saying oh I have something important and just getting a bunch of other people saying oh this is cool (laughs) I wanna I wanna put some labor into that um Mark you kind of I think alluded to some of the the challenges in archiving musical heritage hip-hop um so I I want to ask about that explicitly especially if anyone listening is working in this area or adjacent um which, what are what are the challenges
1: oh wow yeah, you know there, there's a couple um <laughs> you know i can i could off the top when your histories are contentious right and when you're not trying to document the winner only and you want to get all the voices in there, you have to have these polyphonic and polyvocal histories or else you're going to have someone boasting about something that you can't verify. Unless the folks that were there at the time were like, wait a minute, I don't think it was, you know, I don't think the crowd was exactly reacting to you that way. Um, but the challenges are is that there, there's old relationships too. And those old relationships come with uh, bad experiences that people sometimes don't get over, you know, and and digging that up when, when we want to find the gold, we find everything else. When we start digging up old stories and histories and people's feelings, um, you know, sometimes they're, they're, it's part of the story. Mm-hmm. So there is no rational no, and objective way to say this is the history without having people, without it having affect you know, and people saying, Oh, I remember that time when, and you fill in the blank, or this was the greatest experience, and this was my least greatest, you know, my least wonderful experience uh at a concert or working with a a, a band or a group or a crew or, or something like that. So the I mean in, in the Canadian context, I can say really clearly one of the greatest challenges is is living beside the world's largest media. Um media source you know um canadian media struggles to to tell a canadian story um and they've embraced the work i'm doing but in terms of why this work never happened before there aren't a lot of avenues to tell canadian stories about its own history Um, and a lot of our media landscape is dominated by american media outlets who who you know are not interested in, in a canadian story at least not before drake right um so so those are some of some of the difficulties i mean the hardest i think i would say the hardest thing is to convince people that the things that they have are are valuable and important you know so people are throwing out old radio shows that they've recorded um they're dumping their cassettes a lot of stuff that they feel like uh, is is you know uh, obsolete It has so much value and and until you until you show folks that these are all of the ways that we can uh, rethink and reuse these materials and tell different kinds of stories about the history of hip-hop then that's the that's the first hurdle to get get over and people see oh other people are interested in in my collection and that's kind of where the ball starts rolling
3: what, if I can jump in one of the to, to Mark's point uh, I've seen it a number of times uh here in uh in in at the Massachusetts hip-hop archive I call it kind of relitigating old beefs you know uh old <laughs> conflict you know and these guys come together and, and and it can be kind of good natured saying well what you're describing isn't quite how I remember it and so the archival artifacts can sometimes provide evidence right that this is you know ostensibly standing in as a truth statement right which we know that that can also be problematic which i think is you know from a theoretical perspective is fascinating right um that the artifacts are ostensibly they're they're they're, they're being positioned as 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 evidence of truth um and so There'll be that, but at the same time, there's uh, in the gatherings at the uh, archives, you know, meetings, and uh, when there's archival events that um that that have been hosted by uh, by the archive here in the city, it's like a, a family reunion. I swear people come together and then the oral history starts happening people are just like the reminiscence the nostalgia the recall and you know um to pacey foster's um uh credit but this is going on in other places as well try and record that trying to get that down uh so that then also becomes part of the archival record right as people just like spontaneously saying oh i remember this or you know the recall that comes up when they see either an an object or some video footage of some sort and then the other part i'd add to that which i hadn't foreseen but it's it's a beautiful thing is the way some of the archival events can be uh, memorials for those who are no longer here to represent themselves but they show up in the archive they're dead they're past but they're not and their memory is is resonant and they were they were and remain important to the community and the archive keeps that alive, keeps them alive as memory at least. And it's a beautiful thing. It's an amazing thing.
2: Yeah, I always say archiving is death work, which is not something I was ready for when I became an archivist. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to, if anyone listening has picked up the book or is planning to, I do want to highlight one chapter that really, I thought spoke very powerfully to this, I'll just the name of the chapter will give it away. It's um chapter seven, the Ballad of Grandmaster Ph, contesting narratives and lost archives in Philippine hip hop. Really, really fascinating. A world I knew nothing about, <laughs> but yeah. really um a well done chapter on sort of these. You know, there's just there's a lot of stuff in the world that was never recorded so to speak not in, sort of, and in this not in this evidentiary way and this chapter really um gets at that quite well uh, i also wanted i wanted to go back to one thing you said mark about convincing people that their material is important which is one okay. hurdle and i think another hurdle when people are sort of Thinking in terms of institutional archives is there's a real lack of capacity, right? A lot of archives are very um, you know, especially formats that they don't have the ability to digitize or care for properly, et cetera. i I, I the archive where I work, world's largest archive of Eastern European Jewish history and culture, right? And we have to my knowledge, the largest Jewish sound archive in the United States. And we get a lot of people who want to donate records that we have. And they are cool and they are rare, but we just already have them. Um, And frankly, nobody, nobody like very, very few places want Yiddish records, right? There's just not a, a major interest in that. And I just I I don't know what will come of this, but I one of one of uh you know a potential donor whose collection we couldn't take, or just you know somebody who's donated to the archive was like, "What if you sent duplicates to um, you know, assisted living facilities and nursing homes and things like that so that people can kind of it's the music of their youth, right? Yeah. that that could be cool. And I was like, wow. That could be cool. What a great, what a great thing that would be for these records that are not, we're not going to take them and archive these particular instances, these LPs that are in this person's house, right? We have them, but they can still be used if we can figure out other uses for them. So I don't, I don't know. That might be completely irrelevant to the hip hop question. You might be stuck at that first, you know, people wanting to preserve their stuff, period. But just working with a lot of donors, you really, I mean, so many archives are so kind of stretched in terms of labor and money, and they are constantly having to say no to material that they really do want and just can't responsibly steward.
1: Yeah. Um, You know, because hip hop emerged outside of institutions, they're really there are and in a smaller country than the united states there aren't a lot of people that are like here's my collection because there aren't institutions that they know will celebrate them right um but for i can tell you two strategies two experiences one is i remember telling someone during the pandemic that i didn't have capacity to take all of their cassettes uh and he's a he you know he's a dj he's still performing i see him at events he comes to our events but he was so deeply offended mm. that uh i said i can't i won't do that again <laughs> because it really so shines this kind of negative light on Northside hip-hop um but i have been been trying to work around some of that by ensuring that it, as much things as I get, get digitized and people see it out in the world and they know it has a life somewhere. Um, but that's really one of the workarounds because most people are uh, on the scale that I work, you know, think of the scale of Canada as one tenth the size of the United States, which means for every, every independent record where there's a thousand copies or 5,000 copies made in a city like Chicago or Detroit, then there's five hundred copies made in Toronto or less, so people are in no way trying to give up some of these things that have a lot of meaning to them. They also weren't mass collected, right? So there wasn't, there wasn't a bunch of people buying these records because they were at the front of the store and on sale. They were deeply committed to the scene and they knew the artists on. You know, more likely than not, they had some sort of deep connection to the, to the song or the album or the piece of vinyl. So giving that stuff up is not. Yeah, it's usually not at the top of people's priority list. But going to your other question, you know, the other difficulty once you get people engaged in archival work um, is that it's hard for some people to imagine value outside of market terms. They think, oh, this is going to be worth a lot of money. Yeah, it might be worth a lot of money to five people, but 50,000 other people won't care about it, you know. um. And trying to get people to understand, well, we gotta. It would be really, really important that your your item or your um, your histories are shared with, with the other five thousand or fifty thousand people. Like, there's you know, there's public discourse to to create, um, and getting people to imagine outside of like, oh, how much can I sell this poster for? How much can I sell this cassette for? Um, which, while I don't want to dis- disregard that, you know. Most artists don't have pensions, especially if you're performing in the 80s. So I get it. Like, there's a real fiscal reality there. Um, but when, you know, when when you're working at such a small scale, then sometimes it's really difficult to to try to ama- help people imagine how this thing could be valuable to a bunch of other people, uh, especially if you don't have, if there is no acquisition fund. You know, sometimes there are acquisition funds, but many times there aren't.
2: And do you find that digitizing, people are more willing to, is it like a lending situation? You digitize stuff and give it back?
1: Yeah, I never, I, I do my best not to keep stuff. People will, okay. give, will donate stuff okay, and okay. they'll say, please just hold on to this because I don't know what will happen to it if you don't hold on to it, which Got I it. will. Um But if I uh, if I ask someone about their collection or if they offer something up, I'll say, yeah, I'll digitize it for you. But I want to give it right back to you.
0: Okay, understood,
1: because these things have deep, deep memories for many people, Um, because if you're if you were collecting hip hop or if you were into hip hop in the 1980s, it wasn't everywhere. So you were a dedicated fan and you were doing research and you were going to spots and you and so your memories are baked into those cassettes and those posters and those t-shirts in a in a way that may not be the same when you could buy the same you could buy biggie small's t-shirt at h&m today right right but if you if you were in toronto in 1994 he came to toronto once and if you have the flyer from that event or the ticket stub from that event you know there's no there's no other way to to hold that memory right for some people you know
3: One of the other things, as I'm thinking about this, too, and listening to Mark um, uh, describe it is, you know, age is a factor. And and it's like, you know, hip hop began. It was made by four you know, young folks. Right. And so some of these cats who who came in and we call them, you know, you know, hip hop and rap celebrities, you know, people like Al Al Cool J on the larger scale, you know, they were 16, 17 uh, when they came in and some some people younger than that. Um, and so the oldest people in hip hop, like the, 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 actual true pioneers that people would all kind of point to and say, yep, they're the guys, they're not 70 yet. Um, and so the culture is in a, in a con in a certain way, still kind of young in the sense that people have this stuff, they've accumulated, it, but they haven't quite gotten to this point of like, I need to dispense of it. I need to dispose of it. I need to clear out the house. Um, or there's not like this secondary point where you can give your seconds, uh to to a senior living facility you know we're not there yet um and so this isn't you know i won't call it a predicament but you know this is one of the ways we have to look at as well it's like you know hip-hop in the u.s uh began roughly you know 1973-74 but hip-hop in um you know in different parts of europe and other parts of the world really didn't take off until maybe 89 or so Right. And those slippages and those um, discrepancies actually begin to matter from an archival, you know, an archival perspective.
2: Yeah, it's not very long ago. I want to go back to this. Question of value, market value and non market value. Um, In the introduction, you write about this transformation of hip hop history from subject to object i thought was really interesting and you were specifically writing about these auctions at places like sotheby's um about of hip-hop memorabilia um but i think i think in a lot of ways a lot of archives (laughs) uh facilitate that process not you know not maybe specifically hip-hop if we're not looking at a kind of institutional hip-hop archive but whatever history they're working with, this transformation from subject to object. And I think that there are a a lot of valid critiques of that transformation that archives facilitate. Um, So how can archival practitioners or educators, curators, whoever, ensure that hip-hop history remains the subject, so to speak? And if the answer is, like, don't put it... An institutional archive that's cool too maybe it's unavoidable um but i i'm interested in
3: your thoughts on that
1: uh where do you want me to take this one
3: i mean i'll, I'll just jump, in, like, yeah, just jump like, in just like make sure that, that in any any archive you know hip, hip-hop archive is community responsive and that it's a community accessible um uh you know operation you know that's one of the ways that you know just make sure that there's community buy-in people understand what's happening to the artifacts and the material um and that they know that it's there any time for them to sort of plug into uh and to engage with uh whether it's uh, for you know reflection nostalgia entertainment or research whatever it might be i mean i think that's one of the ways to make sure that it remains connected to a hip-hop culture which is say it's 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 not objectified
1: Yeah. And, I, you know, I would say that um, practitioners need to uh, continue to see their practice, not solely uh, as an entertainment function, you know, to see their practice and their engagement with the history of the culture, because they're all doing the homework. They're studying the greats. They know the, the lyrics. They know the, the dance moves. They know the scratching techniques. But to very consciously when archiving hip-hop to be inclusive of those things as you know um you know as diana taylor suggests that you know repertoire is a kind of expressive behavior and performance it's a kind of episteme right it's a way of knowing it's a way of analyzing the world and having that sit alongside the boxes and the folders and the copies and the and the traditional ways that archiving happens keeping those things in tension i think will be or is is fruitful because hip-hop if it cannot become this um objectified um completely known thing out of, out of a box, right? like it's it becomes known by doing the dance move. you it becomes known by scratching the record. Um, and allowing those two very uh, different preservation methods to exist alongside one another I think is going to help us not imagine that we can know hip-hop from from studying papers, you know like sometimes that involves talking to the people. It involves going to an event, watching how the art forms are performed um, to give you a more wholesome view of what the culture is about.
3: What well, one, one a quick example, it's an anecdote in, in some of my uh, research that I've been doing, uh, you know, interviewing individuals, and I, I won't name names, but I know who everybody is. Um, but it was at um, the launch of the Cornell Collection uh, at Cornell University. The, and uh, they had a, a big, you know, symposium and, uh, you know, panels with academics and scholars and artists, practitioners, uh, pioneers. It was, it was really quite something. And you can find this online as well. Um, but in one of, the, one of the panels, somebody was up on the panel speaking at length uh, about one of the pioneers. And the pioneer was in the audience. And the pioneer stood up and said, why are you talking about me like I'm dead? Like I'm right here. And I'm still doing this I should be up there on stage talking about my own self right wow. <laughs> um and, 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 and you know it hushed the room but it all, I think it also spoke a kind of truth to what 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 archives are what they do what they can do and I think also to some of the early dilemmas of a hip-hop archives like these cats are still around they're still practitioners and active um and they are not going to be objectified and they are going to uh, uh, you know aggressively stand up and and resist that
1: yeah you know, one of the one of the things you didn't get to see, Murray, uh, in my first exhibition, I had, when we opened the doors, I had people from the hip hop community walking in with their artifacts and they were putting it on the wall themselves and there was space for them to do that. And then they took cue cards and they narrated their own. So they were diffusing the power of, of the archive and of the curator, me, doing this kind of work. But it was very much about, I'm not in this story and it wasn't like, why are you excluding me? I was like, it was more about the doors are open. Let's do this together. Cool. You know, you guys were there. I'm younger than you. You know, I'm I'm creating the infrastructure. Let's create the story together, and that that could be a method a methodology that you know that can be uh, imagined in in many of these. I I imagine this might have happened. In something similar would happen in Ottawa and in a lot of these other cities people feel comfortable and there's a community vibe that you can walk into the exhibition and say here's my art piece here's my first graffiti piece here's my newspaper article um mm-hmm. and and have and be inclusive you know and have them part of the part of the the historical record
3: well this is one of the things i think does come up in the book you know we talk about you know kind of the idea of hip-hop bum rush in the archive you know uh, um you know if, if putting up a graffiti piece on a wall is a certain kind of appropriation of public space. So like coming in with something and, you know, just actually literally putting it up on an archive, uh, you know, wall or or some sort of a uh, display, you know, that's totally in, in keeping with that. That's exactly yeah. it. Yeah.
2: I have found that community archives are <laughs> much better at that. I mean, I've, I've certainly been involved in exhibitions where we actively Invited people to donate if they had relevant. It's a lot of sort of social movement history. So, if people have relevant material, or I've seen a lot of exhibitions where there is a dedicated space if someone wants to do an oral history, things like that. um But I think it goes back to this this death work thing in a way. This idea that if you're in an archive, it's because Maybe you're not literally dead, but something has ended. <laughs> and I can yep. see how I can see how people who are involved, who are, you know, doing hip hop come to these exhibitions and they're like, "I'm not dead. <laughs> I'm still here, yeah, it can that could be uh...
1: but you know, you know it's happened to it, it kind of happened to me in terms of someone coming to the exhibition and feeling like you know, is this the end of hip hop? Like, why is it in an exhibition, you know? Um, and if you follow Stuart Hall in Constituting an Archive, you know, there's a certain, we're moving from innocence to uh, consciousness of, of the historical process, it's a maturation where, you know, that community starts to realize that, oh, we're not kids anymore. Oh, we did stuff and that stuff is disappearing, you know? so. Uh, for some people, they know it's an epoch, but it—they're not quite sure how to, you know, articulate that. Oh, something dramatic has changed. It's like, yeah, we're no longer innocent actors in in the making of this history. It's made and it's out there, and it's it should be it should be articulated and and captured in in a way that can be shared with other folks. So, it's it is a it's a difficult moment because as you keep coming back to this idea of death in the archive, um, you know. Hip-hop really challenges that notion, just like that pioneer in the audience because there there are so many, and I'll give you a great example, you know, for many great turntablists, there's a routine by a turntablist who's passed away now called DJ Rock Raider, where they scratch over their shoulders and they move the mixer with their shoulder blades. That routine is like canon now, you know, and he's passed and it's an honorific act, but he's alive. You know, his 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 artistic innovations are alive. It's speaking to young people because we're still trying to do what he was doing, you know, in the in the 90s when he when he came up with this move. And I, I like to think about the performative aspect of hip-hop culture that this thing can't it can't die if people are still citing your rhymes, if people are still trying to to do the head spin or or do certain dance moves that you know um might have been popularized by Uh, Like B Boy Frost or something like that, who's passed. So there's some something beautiful there in that tension,
3: and in that not not just doing the move or something like that, but also doing it to the same jam, like from you know from that period. Like you know they're using the same rhythms that were maybe used 25 years ago, uh, to you know to to both learn the foundations and learn the original moves, and then to maybe you know add their piece to it and and you know take it a little bit further. But but the jam is is canon. And both DJs and dancers in that case, you know, they both have to be cognizant of that.
2: I think this goes back to, Mary, your very first response to this question um, about history going from subject to, ob- or object to subject. I now forget <laughs> which direction, but you said, you know, some you said archives um, can be, places of research but also you know if they're open to the communities they are presenting they can be places of entertainment and places um of community and i think a lot of archives are really stuck their research they see themselves as research institutions and maybe they are research institutions and i think a lot of our arch- there's a lot a lot of talk as i'm sure you're aware as i'm sure anyone listening is aware of you know drawing in broader communities people who are not academics etc cetera, etc cetera. like not everyone wants to do research per se right like it's a very specific oh. thing it's any sort of artifact that's a very particular use for it and can archives begin to understand themselves as uh, ways places where knowledge is transmitted in a completely different way and that I that is exactly what you both just spoke to, <laughs> um, but I think I think for the kind of institutional archives, that's something to think about. And I also this is this is in response to something Mark said like seven minutes ago, but I still have this chapter open. So I will note it for the listeners. Um, Mark, what you said about the sort of uh, the information. That people need to have to understand these histories. If anyone is interested in that, from a sort of practitioner level, might I recommend Chapter Twelve, "Rap Cubano in the Archive: The Immaterial Paradox," which is a, a relatively wonky. <laughs> uh, as this book goes, sort of how how did somebody actually catalog and what information did they include and things like that um definitely thought-provoking if anyone listening is actively cataloging or archiving uh musical material um all right we are running out of time so i'll ask one last question and this is the uh classic new books network closing question is there anything you're working on now that you'd like to share
1: um I think I'm 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 working on a um, a bunch of things, but I'm I'm working on promoting this book and starting some conversations. But I'm I'm thinking of the follow up to this book that won't be for me. It won't be in a book format, right? It will be uh, a creative production. Um, that is, you know, I'm in, I'm in the middle of of touring a, a, a an exhibition on graffiti in Canada. Um, and it's, uh, it's on its way back to Canada from overseas. And uh, so I'm focused on that, but I'm trying to think of more creative responses to part two to this book, because I feel like there's a, there's a conversation we still want to have that with people that may not, um, dive deep into this, this book is something that around, um, music and, and, um, going back to some of my some of my early djing days thinking about sampling and and how do we how do we think about memory and memory work in a way that is um <clears throat> not re- reduced to to being within the clutches of an archival institution right and and hip hop has there's multiple ways that hip hop does that so i'm spending time uh thinking through some of those issues right now before i produce something next
3: and you know, in Mark's comment, just to sort of draw attention to it, that, you know, while he's, uh, you know, the the ace Canadian uh, and Toronto archivist of hip hop, uh, he also does curatorial work and, you know, almost like museum type stuff and, and does put together these amazing displays that throughout Canada and uh, that have been in London and uh, in Japan. And uh, that's another part is making sure that, in fact, that, you know, the the material is you know presented in a much more wide wide presented much more widely, um. So so it's available you know for at uh, almost you know as a as a touring show in some ways and a, a touring exhibit, which I think is an important piece of it. And and not a lot of archives that I've seen do it that way and do it as well. It is too
1: hard. <laughs> it's a lot of work.
3: Yeah, that's no why they don't do it. Yeah, I don't know how you do it, brother, but you know,
1: <laughs> barely, just barely. Uh, um, yeah. So that's what I'm working on.
3: Yeah, my side, I'm um, continuing, um, you know, from this project, um, our uh, our friend Courtney Chartier, who is a former president of uh, Society of American Archivists, uh, she put out a call for papers for um, uh, a special issue of, um, uh, what was it called, the Journal the of ju-
1: Archival Organization? The is Journal
3: that- of Ar- Archival Organization, yeah, um, a special issue on, uh, on hip-hop archiving, and so, uh, you know, I, drawing on some of the material in my own research uh, that, that didn't fit into this book, um, I, I submitted a chapter for that, and I, uh, I don't know where that project's at, but it's going to be great, and it'll be just another kind of amplifier of some of the issues for sure. Um, and then my long-standing project, which also has you know a lot of overlapping components here, um, is ta- uh, old in the game. Time, age, and aging in hip hop, which is really about this notion of who are these pioneers? How are pioneers uh, identified? What is the whole discourse and terminology of being a pioneer in the culture? Uh, and what are some of the implications of it and what are the conflicts that go along with it between or among pioneers, um, among, you know, creating generational dissonance, those sort of things. Um, and so that's the major project I'm working on right now. And um, I've got a almost completed manuscript and uh, I'm getting old in the game, just working on it and <laughs> I'm ready to have it done. And and, and hopefully it'll uh, it'll find uh, traction and get out there. Uh, and then, then I don't know. Then, then, then I, you know, like Mark, I sort of look at what's going on in the field, look what hip hop's doing, and uh, and and try and catch the vibe, and and see if there's work I can do to help build the culture, because that's really what it's about. Um, in an interview with Chuck D, at one point, he said that at his stage in his career, he's in service to hip hop. Everything he does is really just about creating the culture and and making sure it endures building it making sure the history uh, uh is preserved and not forgotten and i think that's noble work and and so i think you know i think i can probably you know mark and i both share that 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 that, that that's what we're about yeah most definitely
2: wonderful thank you both so much for taking the time this evening
3: it's a real thank plet- you for having us so much for having us yeah